listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jay George, Kieran Roberts, and Rob Horn to discuss human factors of cybersecurity. Before we delve into the topic, uh, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Jay, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. Hi there, my name's Jay George. I'm Managing Director of Clearloop Security. Thank you, Jay. And Kieran? Hi, yeah. my name's Kieran Roberts. I'm a director at Fortify Cyber, uh, primarily doing uh, penetration testing. Fantastic. And finally, Rob. Hi, last but not least, Rob Horn. I'm a principal consultant with Trustwave, uh, part of the cyber advisory team, so the GRC uh, end of the spectrum. That's it. Thank you very much. Okay, so now we're introduced, we'll move on to the topic. Uh, so you all have a question or statement on human factors of cybersecurity. As usual, I work around the room, give you each uh, an opportunity to pose your question and give the reasons behind it um, and give your take on the situation. So um, we'll start with you, Joe. Uh, Joe, would you like to pose Great. your question? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the issues that I tend to see is um, how we avoid what we refer to as counterfactuals when we look at a security incident after it's already passed. It's very easy to apply what we see right now to what, to what happened, um, whereas the fact is that things at the time made sense to the people in the context they were in then. So how can we actually avoid looking at things through through a lens that is only put together after the fact? Okay, Kieran, we'll come to you first. So I guess is this, is this uh, you know almost analogous to like hindsight is twenty twenty sort of a thing? Like is that kind of what we're what we're suggesting? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I think mean, it's a really good question. So I would say I wonder if one of the, one of the first things I uh, think of is like the fact that, you know, quite often from a defensive perspective, when let's say we're doing a phishing campaign or a uh, social engineering campaign of some description, one of the things that we find is that people, it's not necessarily that, that things made sense to them at the time, it's just that they didn't really think about what they were doing and people can quite easily be led astray. Uh, so I would suggest that, you know, I think maybe part of the issue is is not that things make sense to people at the time. It's just that they're just not questioning um, what what information is being provided to them, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So I, I always find it interesting to think how we can apply that knowledge after the security event so that when people have it happen again, because unfortunately, inevitably, things happen week after week, month after month. How can we try to make people's awareness of the situation better when they are under what turns out to be quite a pressurised time? Yeah, I think the, the two aspects of that, uh, one is the, the education one, but the other one is the uh, take what I call taking the path of least resistance. So if I do it this way, that's the less hassle for me and, and the easiest way I can achieve what I'm wanting. And that's not always the most secure way, as we know. Uh, so I think that there's a sort of that aspect as well, which ties in with the education. Tell them, teach them the right way to do it, uh, or inform them the right way of doing it, but take away the ability to do it the wrong way as well. Yeah, indeed. Um, w one of the tools that I find really useful is to try to um, put in context-rich stories around the event that occurred. So we have a habit of simplifying things and saying, well, I wouldn't have done that at the time or why did they engage in that? But uh, we, we can look certainly to the aviation industry here, how their safety record has improved significantly in fairly recent history and the lessons from the human factors work they've done around around there. So we have to understand what that local context was that people engaged with 
at that time. By dragging out the context for its story, we can see what people's motivations were, how it made sense, sense for them. And we can hopefully then push that back into our procedures and our daily working practices so that we have less chance of that same sort of thing occurring again. So it's funny you should mention that, like when, when Rob first said that the topic would be human factors, that was actually the very first thing I thought of was, you know, in the aviation industry, whenever there's a, a major incident, like human factors over the last couple of decades has you know people have really become much more aware of like the fact that actually human factors are a huge thing like you know pilots just not having enough sleep has caused you know has been you know the root cause of, of all sorts of major incidents yeah and you know as an IT professional I can tell you I don't always get enough sleep so you know I think that, <laughs> that there is definitely lessons to be learned from from areas who are studying human factors in a lot more depth than we are I think, yeah. and maybe we should be you know looking at looking at it a lot more it definitely we can learn from the aviation industry that there's a lot of excellent examples in there. And uh, every time you you jump on a flight, you have your safety briefing, which uh, what where your life jacket is, what to do this, what to do that, and it's um, it is that something that we should look at. Uh, we do have kind of that when a lot of us when you log on, there's a message saying about don't do anything you shouldn't do, but. Is that enough? Are, are we just ignoring that? Should we have a move well away from the traditional, here's my quick multi-choice, multi-question choice uh, training that I do once a year into something that's hammered in small but neat and and uh, very focused uh, much, much more regularly? Yeah, indeed, and certainly if we look at something like uh, safety-driven industries like aviation, as we've been talking about so, uh, so far, it's about reducing uh, the chance of someone deviating away from procedure by using things like checklists. So, um, for example, I tend to try to steer instant response plans, and I'm sure we've all got our own bugbears over policies that just contain lots and lots of words, and it's not clear how we actually use those. So instead, an instant response plan that is effectively a checklist and a flowchart. Because when something goes wrong, that's a highly pressured situation. Making people have to think on their feet can lead to a lot of problems and it can lead to things being missed. Um, so, for example, I dive a lot and I have to do a lot of safety checks of my kit. And a lot of that starts before I even get near the water, before I leave the house. I have a checklist and I run down it and I physically put a check next to everything that's been done. Um, but I think that's a start. We need to make sure those checklists are fit for purpose as well and i think there it's about how do we run through in a safe environment this procedure that we have to make sure it actually works for the organization that we're trying to protect yeah, definitely okay that's enough further points on that we'll uh, move on to your question Rob. yeah simple question why is cybersecurity so difficult for people to understand <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> uh, and I've got my own thoughts, but uh, yeah, yeah love, love to hear everybody else's. I, I wonder if if that part of the answer relates back to something that Jay mentioned earlier around, like you know, just context, like people just not necessarily being aware of of the implications of of, of what they're doing or not doing. Um, I think necessarily it's not necessarily a, a lack of understanding, but it's just a lack of understanding of the potential consequences, or you know, just not having a full understanding of why they're being. You've know, been told you must have. A, a secure password or whatever right it's a fairly arbitrary example but you know what does that necessarily mean to somebody and why is that actually important it is a very different conversation and i think that you know having that context 
can make a significant difference to, to someone either understanding or caring about following that guidance. Yeah, and I think yeah. there's a certain amount of um, gatekeeping that takes place as well. As security professionals, we have a habit of thinking, well, we're the experts in this particular domain and this is how we think need think things need to be done. And we tend to fall back on our own particular language for security. And I don't think people consider enough how that has to be made into something that's much easier to digest, that makes sense for the people that have to receive those. And we have to get away from the idea that it's security experts alone that will actually steer things and instead drive things through the language and the culture of the organisation that we're, we are in. And even using language about the wider culture outside of the organisation as well, because the moves, world moves on very, very fast. I always feel that security culture-wise doesn't quite keep pace. No, definitely. And as you say, language, uh, instead of a nice, simple, easy to understand word, let's have another acronym. Uh, <laughs> we've got more acronyms and than probably anywhere else in the, any other industry in the world. So uh, we don't need them. We deliberately seem to make life difficult to for everybody else to, to be very precious of, of our industry and our knowledge. And, and again, it's we, we don't necessarily get the message over correctly, just as you were saying just now. Uh, it's one, one thing I've talked about before, but um, the uh, what we're saying to people is you need to buy all this stuff uh, to help protect you. Um, so I think of it sometimes as like uh, buying insurance. Pay for all this and uh, and you'll be okay. Uh, but if you if you don't pay for this, all these horrible, nasty things will happen to you. you know, you'll be fished and ransomware and everything will go out of business. You'll lose money. But when we look at something like car insurance, when's the last time you saw a car insurance ad that showed two cars crashing together and said, you'd lose money if you don't take out our policy? So their message is, uh, really sort of you can be happier and everything's nicer and it's all wonderful if you do this little thing maybe we should kind of take a leaf out of their book and, <laughs> and say you know yeah we know it's going to cost you money we know it's it's sometimes difficult to comply with but you'll be a much happier person if you do so rather than <laughs> you'll you'll end up in some horrible it meltdown <laughs> yeah bit, bit. Because it is now a fact of life that organisations are going to get attacked, things are going to going to go wrong. Uh, if we look at an organisation um, through the approach of systems thinking, then it's the people, the technology, the process, it's the culture as well that all contributes to how that system works. And there's an awful lot of moving parts in any organisation the, the, these days. And of course, as classical engineering tell, tells us, the more moving parts there are, the more likely it is that something's going to go to go wrong. So we need to have the message coming out to say, yeah, things are still going to occur, but it doesn't mean that, that means security has failed. It means we're prepared for things. So I think a good example here is the um, data breach notification laws in GDPR and the UK Data Protection Act. There isn't anything in there that says you should never have a data breach ever. Instead, we've got clear guidelines on what to do when things do occur. Sure, there's a whole load of stuff you should have done to minimise the chance of it taking place, but we have a very clear procedure and we have very clear timescales as well. And having those means we can be prepared for, unfortunately, when the inevitable happens. Yeah, I think there, there's a general shift within the, the whole kind of... Uh, industry I think towards more of like an assumed breach mentality and you know people moving towards the quote-unquote zero trust type environment where rather than having you know the traditional idea of we're going to build our fortifications 
and then if you get in then we're it's game over you know you're building an environment that has defense in depth especially dealing with with with, with users as well right making sure that people just as general practice don't have any additional access to systems that they shouldn't have uh, you know you're just going to be much better off like you said if or potentially when something bad does happen it's just as well as the people outside of it whether how much of an understanding they have of cyber security and you know a lot of the attacks that are coming through i got a message off my mum the other day saying that royal mail had texted her to say we tried to drop a parcel off and click here and we'll put your details and i said well, when's royal mail ever text you yeah. And she said, well, never. I said, well, do not click on that link. <laughs> it's not Royal Mail, you know. So it's, it's things like that. It's a lot of things getting very sophisticated. And, you know, I, we, from, you know, from a, especially from the lower levels outside of business themselves, I think there's a general lack of understanding or lack of, I think there's, there's a generally a bit, it's a bit too much trust, you know, about things. Everything, everything is what it seems it is. And it's not, you know, it's a, Yeah, the, the whole pandemic situation has made this so much easier for the criminals because we are separate, we are not communicating as much, and we are relying on the information that we get more. Uh, there's been some, as you say, some really clever uh, attacks like that. But uh, I did see one that made me laugh uh, a little while ago, a beautifully crafted uh, message from DHL, which was illustrated with a picture of a parcel van from UPS. So <laughs> a, a bit of a failure there, but you had to look closely to, to spot that. So it was uh, to anybody not aware that these things are going on, uh, then you're going to click on it because they don't understand how easy it is to be tricked into doing these these actions. and. Is that part, as you say, the, the education is a big part, but I think I'd like to see as an industry, we are not just educating uh, exclusively our users or our audience, that we're spreading that out. And to extend that, um, government need to be doing that as more. They, they need to be putting adverts out and showing people very simply, if you get a text like this, it's probably fake. Uh, and yes. that's all you need to do. <laughs> 10 second advert and you for millions of people uh, to watch out for it so but so why is that not happening <laughs> yeah, and uh, Kieran you mentioned the idea of zero trust and yeah. certainly I think that extends beyond it merely being an approach we use for our technical devices but it should be almost a catch, catchphrase we use when we uh, look at things as humans from a purely non-technical approach as well mm, yeah for sure like it's slightly off topic, but uh, it's, it's related, I promise. Uh, so, uh, Rob, you mentioned, you know, like phishing campaigns or, or you know, phishing messages that, that looked uh, suspicious or were just suspicious just purely by context. You know, I wouldn't normally mm -hmm. expect to receive this this way. Um, from an offensive perspective, when, when we perform phishing engagements, I've personally dealt with a customer who said, no, you can't launch that phishing campaign. He said, why not? And he said, it, it's too realistic. Uh, you need to add some spelling mistakes and things like that. And we're like, no, like this isn't how this works. Yeah. Like, I understand that you know mm -hmm. traditionally you do often get you know mistakes and errors and things mm -hmm. in inefficient campaign, but there's no requirement for it to be that way. You used to. It's getting less now. Exactly. It's much yeah. more sophisticated now. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. And I've seen people that have been fished and they've they've looked at it. Oh, that looks good. Now I'll click that link. Oh, it asked me to log in, and then it's afterwards. They suddenly light bulb moment i shouldn't have done that yeah. and oh dear i better tell my it department and they rung the it department and then the you know, 90 60 90 seconds between realizing and ringing they're already under attack and somebody's already got part way in it's that quick so we 
that's great that somebody spotted the fact that they'd done it afterwards, but we need to somehow get it to, doesn't matter how sophisticated it is, uh, don't rely on looking for the bad spelling and the bad grammar, which is one of the messages that we've been giving out for years, because that's becoming more and more out of date now. And that goes back to Jay's point earlier about uh, let, let's update ourselves, let's keep up with what's going on, uh, because we're not all phishing attacks are via email, but that's the one we tend to concentrate on. But as we've seen, text and social media and all sorts of things nowadays, which we're just behind the times a bit with, I think. I think in general as well, like because we're a lot more used to those phishing type things, like people do have their guard down in other other aspects. And I think that's definitely, you know, a significant concern for organizations. And the thing with with, with phishing campaigns is they're so prevalent because they're easy to send and you know you mm. can just fire them out all over the place and hopefully someone will click like but you know more targeted attacks do happen and it can be extremely effective like I, I've done a couple of social engineering campaigns I did one a couple of months back where we were physically trying to get into a customer's office um, and everyone was just so nice you know they <laughs> made me a cup of tea uh and, you know, to the point where I almost felt bad, like, you know, I have to write a report to talk about all of the ways that this process has failed. But it was just people being nice. Um, which... Taking advantage of, of human behavior. Absolutely. Because yeah, we, we, this... are, we are nice. Yeah. yeah. And people have this like vision of what a hacker or, you know, an attacker looks like. And it isn't someone dressed in a business suit turning up at, at your office. Um, but it, it, it can be. Yeah, yeah, I've always thought that I always thought the best way to break into a, a, an office building is with your hands full of trays of cups of coffee and a smile yeah. on your face. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you don't even need that. I visited a client once who uh, um, had a swipe card entrance and uh, with big glass doors, and it said um, little sign on the door saying, "If you've forgotten your card, just wave and somebody will let you in." But <laughs> ironically, I didn't even need that because they left the door unlocked. So <laughs> trying to be helpful and friendly and trying to make life easier for everyone they put a huge hole through their perimeter security and, and and that's the balance is the the sort of usability and helpfulness against the security um I, yeah we've all got probably hundreds of examples at least of all these uh, I, i'll just get another one quick while i've got the floor um a uh office building in london uh the swipe card entry to one of the operational floors had broken they stuck uh the company had stuck a, a desk inside and got receptionist to sit there uh but hadn't told her her job was to screen people coming in she thought her job was to help people so you could walk straight in as a complete stranger and she'd say how can i help yes i'd like to plug my laptop in i'd like to get on the wi-fi and she was helping a great control but not configured <laughs> properly. <laughs> and I think this points to um, one of the problems with um, trying to identify the root cause, because we have a habit of saying human error. And just saying human error doesn't actually help us at all. It simplifies the cause, um, has a habit of leading to blame, and doesn't provide a route to fix the issue. So we need to start categorising things a bit more. You know, it is the fact that control failed, is it a slip, is it a lapse, is it an error, um, are we looking at a near miss? And once we can start to categorise, then we can start to work out what's actually behind of all of those as well. So for example, with the receptionist didn't know they had to screen people, um, 
that's not a slip or, or a lapse. It isn't something they forgot to do. The fact is, it wasn't communicated mm. to that person that that was part of their role. And then others in the organisation assumed they were doing this action that in fact had never been um, uh, uh, communicated to them at all. Absolutely. You do get people do something completely out of character that's completely against everything they've been told. But those are quite rare. Uh, as you know, they're it's normally because they've not been told something or they've been told something or like in aviation industry, they didn't get enough sleep the night before. They trained on a, a slightly different cockpit layout. So when they thought they were pushing something on, they were actually turning it off. Uh, yeah. And these little things are, are what cause it. So yeah, absolutely right. Look past the human error, do a deep root cause analysis because then you can find the issues that are potentially systemic and way back in the process that that oh fix that then uh, we can uh, we actually fix potentially a lot of things. I do it. Um, uh, pen test reports. Pen test reports are great. Uh, you like, hey, misconfigured this. You haven't done that. You've, it's great. But then I look back and look at the results. Say why did you misconfigure that? Uh, is it? And it's often something like, uh, particularly you find with cloud now, you didn't have the knowledge of how to properly and securely configure Kubernetes, for example, something like that, because that's a highly specialized skill and it's a very new skill. So the the issue is not that you that it was wrongly configured. The issue is with your uh, training of your technical staff, uh, which is uh, somewhat more because you could be find that you haven't trained people in other areas which are going to the same causes cause multiple issues uh, so yeah we definitely need to get back uh, not blame the human as it were <laughs> I think that kind of neatly brings us back to your original question mm -hmm. of like why is cyber hard to understand I think part of the answer is because sometimes it's hard to understand right like mm. exactly like you're talking about there are so many different technologies around nowadays some of which are very new um, even just like things that have been around forever like windows uh, windows active directory environment in its default state is not as secure as it could be um so you know unless you're aware of that and you know you you have a good understanding of, of what features are turned on by default these term features slightly loosely, but you get the idea. Um, yep. You know, like if you're not aware of what's happening within your environment, then you could be setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, that's right. It, it's the uh, it is difficult to understand. It is extremely technical in some areas, but that's where you have the properly trained technical staff. Uh, I wouldn't expect everybody to understand cloud, but I would expect a company to have proper cloud management in place and change management so that not everybody could let's just spin up a, a an s3 bucket or something and dump a load of critical data in there with no access control on it uh, so yeah so I, the right level of abilities and skills and understanding needs to sit at the right level but absolutely we couldn't train everybody to be a cloud engineer and i don't think they want to be to be honest either <laughs> <laughs> interesting good stuff okay well uh if we finish there we'll move on to uh to Kira's question sure uh well we've actually covered a little bit of this already <laughs> but uh the question is uh should cybersecurity be part of an organization's culture uh, what I mean by that is like, you know, I've worked for a couple of different companies where we had specific pillars or uh, values that, you know, the entire organization was supposed to kind of work by. And typically those are things like, you know, be kind, you know, those kinds of things, which is, which are great, obviously, but that can sometimes fly in the face of security. Again, like we discussed, people typically are quite nice. Most people are nice most of the time. And sometimes that can lead to cybersecurity problems, let's say. Um, so I guess the question is, as a security professional, 
I think absolutely, yes, it should be part of people's values and, and that should be cultural. But, you know, even though I've, I've worked for other pen test companies where there was no specific mention of, you know, cybersecurity or anything like that in, in the company's values. So, you know, it, should it be? Um, and how do we kind of do that if, if, if so? I think you've already signposted there towards um, something that goes along, goes beyond just talking about security itself. So you mentioned the idea of, you know, be, be kind, be nice to your colleagues, behave in a professional, ethical way. And it's that sort of culture in the organisation that I feel supports things more. So we need to address a couple of items here. So one is around psychological safety, so that we know that people across the organisation feel that they can speak up and they can mention when they see something that isn't isn't right. There's a habit that people fall into, which is they see some something, no one does anything about it, and then they just assume that's normal, that's fine, that's the status quo. Um, I used to work somewhere where the change control forms under the risks section for literally every single change that ever been submitted said make sure all passwords are secure and i challenged someone and said what's that supposed to mean they went we don't know we just copy and paste from every single change form into the into the new ones um, so we need to make sure that people feel free that they can speak up and they can raise problems particularly because we want to get the young bright people into our organizations who are new to the world of work who are new to the area of cyber security we want them to pick up things and run with them but if they're having a problem because the organization doesn't run what we tend to refer to as a just culture where they're not able to speak up unfortunately things are never going to change definitely absolutely it does need to be part of culture a big resounding yes from me and it's uh, it needs to be totally integral because um well we're talking we talk about it but really we're talking about tools to process information and information is as valuable to a company to an organization as money but uh, financial responsibility and financial good conduct and, and processes are embedded in pretty much every organization or should be we can't just go out and say oh i fancy that i'm going to get the company to buy it for me i'm going to raise a po and and uh, get that new car or or whatever it is uh, because there are rules in place in every organization against doing that but we don't have the same approach to security and i think definitely we need to look at yeah it is part of it but it's not all of it so uh, uh you, you've seen it as well uh security comes under it no it doesn't it's a big part of it but it <laughs> extends way beyond it extends to every corner of the, the company and that's something that we need to try and fight to so involve everybody get everybody's input to it make sure everybody knows they have a, a part to play uh, and uh, yeah exactly let's if you spot something or you see something could it could we do it better do you think it's not right um yeah the, these questions we need to get people to ask uh, and as you said it's not if you ask these questions uh, it's not like some strange whistleblowing policy here where uh, um, you're going to find yourself uh, silenced, shut down, out of a job. No, we need to encourage this as an active part of your relationship with your organisation, part of your you know, integral part of your job, really, so yeah, turn, we, turning up to work every day. Yeah, yeah we can um, look at how in other parts of our society things like that have been addressed. So mm. um, the British Transport Fleet Police, for example, has had that phrase, which is lovely and easy to remember, see it, say it, sorted for yeah. years. And it's that lovely idea of you see something that's, that's a bit odd, 
raise your hand, go and go and speak to someone. Mm. There you go, done. And it's nice being able to give people the idea that my only responsibility here is to go and mention something to someone yeah. and people expect me to do that. And then Absolutely. I'm done. So there's, a, there's a famous psychological experiment. I can't remember exactly what it's called. It's called like the smoky room or the smoke filled room or something like that. And the, the basic premise is there are a number of actors in a room taking like a psychometric quiz or something similar to that. And then they have, you know, a, a member of the public sit down and then smoke starts being pumped into the room. And the, the whole point of the experiment is that if that person is alone in the room, as soon as they see the smoke, they act immediately. But when there are other actors in there who seem nonchalant and don't worry about the smoke, the members of the public just sit there, obviously quite concerned, but carry on to doing the test yeah. because that's what everyone else is doing. So I guess as a follow up question, like what if, if we have an organisation who for whom you know, cybersecurity and security in general is not necessarily part of their culture. What kind of advice can we give to those organizations to help get the ball rolling? Because if you, like you said, Jay, like there was an organization who were a bit blasé and they, you know, they didn't really care about it. And it was just a case of copying and pasting from, from previous documents. Like, how do we get that process moving in the right direction or what we yeah. consider to be the right direction? I think it's very much about how the organization interacts internally with members of different um seniority levels even before we start thinking about these security issues so we have a problem with an authority gradient between someone that may be relatively junior versus someone that holds a position of a lot more 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 power i mean sure we do need to have structures in place because we need to allocate out roles and responsibilities and tasks and people have have a different focus depending on that role to make sure we're all pulling in the same direction as an organization however it doesn't mean that the graduate that we've got can't go and talk to the chief exec over here they should feel that even if it's not a security issue it's just some something a small chat having you know um five minutes when they're in the in the break room talking over tea that should be the culture that we should be reinforcing the whole time and i don't think there's a way you can push it through. It has to be reinforced by the organization leaders themselves. I think they have to be visible to people that they work with and they have to show that they do have the time to stop and work with people. Um, I was on holiday in Mexico a few months ago and it was an actual holiday, <laughs> one of the first in qu quite a while. And in my first three days alone, I had to deal with three separate security incidents now might sound a bit annoying however i was actually quite pleased because it meant even though people knew i was away having a break they felt that they could approach me and say hi this actually needs to be dealt with can you provide some input around this yeah, it definitely comes from the top down it's got to be driven by the, the top yeah, the slt top management down uh, because they're the ones people are going to take notice of and and follow they're the leaders uh in both the company and the setting the example for the staff and you see there are organizations out there where those people say our oh, security yes yeah, it's an IT problem not bothered about it nothing to me they're the ones that had the exception in place so they don't have to change their password every 90 days and, and it's yeah you've got to you've got to persuade them no that is the way you're doing it is just going to open you up to all sorts of, of things you don't want to happen uh, so it's education around there, education about what, uh, how they, what, you know, what they're protecting against, what the effects are, what they need to do, and how that affects the rest of the organisation, both uh, from reputational, financial, but also personal issues. Uh, you will, uh, I, I came across a breach recently where um, 
the companies wanted to keep it incredibly quiet and told everyone that <laughs> there's nothing going on and, and it's all fine. And they ended, actually ended up sending people home to um, because they want they closed pretty much closed everything down for the investigation. And there's still months later, there's still issues. People finding that strange uh, loan applications in their experience report, uh, which how's that happen? Where's that data comes from? So they by trying to keep things buried and silent and not informing people, you're actually making it worse. If you were open and upfront mm. and honest about it, you'd get a much better reaction. So it, it's yeah. And they, again, that's the point I tend to try and make a lot is that incident happens. It may be dealt with incredibly quickly and you might think you know, a day, 48 hours, whatever afterwards. That's it. It's gone. No, these things will go on for months and months and months. You'll be feeling the effects of it. So you've got to be aware. It's not just a quick. We threw some IT guys. They fixed it. And now we carry on as normal. It can be you know, a year later, you might still be dealing with the fallout from it. And that's a lot of people don't understand that, don't deal with that properly. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that can lead to an issue where you get into a standard approach of non-reporting that people feel yeah. something negative is going to occur and blame will be laid on them. Um, yeah. I, I dealt with an incident last year where someone left a laptop on a tube or rather had it stolen from them on the tube. And they walked onto the tube, they put it on the floor to the side of them while they were on their phone and then the carriage filled up by the time they got to leave. So they'd clearly taken the laptop and walked off, off, off of it. And I tend to think, it happens. Sure, we've got plenty of technical controls to stop them getting into the laptop to effectively brick the laptop so they can't use it as well. And plenty of detective controls based around the, the, the data, too. So those aren't the issue, really. The issue is about owning up to the rest of the organization to say stuff like this occurs. So rather than keeping mm -hmm. it to ourselves, I encourage the person involved to make just a short 60 second video of them talking directly to cameras saying, hi, I'm such and such. You know me from this role and this work and this is what happened it happened to me so it can happen to you too and i find that that sort of approach really helps to encourage people to understand that actually we're not looking to apportion blame we're just trying to fix prob problems here and it happened to any of us i had myself clicked on a phishing link um I, I was fooled. I hold my hand up to it and say, "Yeah, it got me." <laughs> Luck, luckily, technical measures stopped it going any further. But it can happen to any of us. Just that one moment when you're uh, in this particular circumstances, it was unfamiliar system, and I was um, not—I wasn't aware of, of the, what it was telling me was false. I, it looked genuine. I thought it was. I, so yeah, it can happen to anyone. So we're not. Somebody clicks on something. It's not a you're a bad person. Uh, it's an opportunity to learn for it from everybody else. And like you said, like by sharing that, hopefully you encourage because, like you know, if the data does get lost and it gets hidden by those individuals, then you're in a world of pain potentially because you know the organization doesn't even necessarily know that that something's happened. Like the quicker, mm. like you said, with with the, with the laptop that that, that grew legs. Um, you know, if you have remote wipe capabilities, you need to you want to trigger that at the absolute earliest opportunity. And if, if you don't know about it straight away, then, you know, there's a period of time there where, where something bad could happen. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a good point. Um, and talking to culture, a friend of mine yesterday sent me a photo. Uh, I come, it's one of those offices where you can just go in and anybody can go in and work there. I won't mention any names. And uh, they walked in all open plan, loads of different people wandering around. There's a table with eight laptops sitting on there, nobody inside. 
Uh, now, that's a culture which is not very secure at all, because presumably none of them thought, hey, everyone, we shouldn't just leave these here and go off. <laughs> but that's what happens. And uh, if somebody picked them up and walked out with them, what would they do then? How would they deal with it? So you have no confidence that having not had the right training or the right culture in place to stop that, how would, would they have the right processes in place to deal with it properly? Almost certainly not. Fantastic. Okay. Well, if you've got no further points on that one, um, to move on to uh, my, my question. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Uh, I was just, uh, well, I'd like to pose to you guys, obviously, um, you know, the introduction of remote and hybrid working um, and how that's affected um, human factors of, uh, of cyber, especially with people being at home alone and probably sitting quite nicely relaxed and probably low <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. It, you know, I, I think that's kind of a, had an impact on the community. I think we've definitely seen um, as people have got further away from the office, they are not feeling like they're part of a team anymore and they're missing that vital bit of behavior modeling so while we've already mentioned quite a few examples of really bad behavior for instance kieran's smoking room um then when we are working together side by side we get good behaviors that others reinforce so i'm sure we've all had the classic one where people in our office forget to lock their laptop and they make a cup of tea and we'll usually you know put a YouTube video of some music that they really hate on. You know, a small, humorous way of bringing people's attention to something that they sh should have done. And then, of course, over time, you notice people lock their machines more and they start to tell people to say, get up, don't forget to lock your laptop. Um, and so we get this nice um, self-policing environment that takes place. But when people have been at home, suddenly those behaviours start to relax quite a bit and there's also the idea of you could turn to someone next to you in the office and you can quickly ask them does this seem seem right should i be clicking on this should i be re replying to this but you have this feeling that oh, am i going to disturb someone now do i have to send them a, uh, send them an email do i have to pick up the phone maybe they're in a meeting you know particularly if we're looking on um, collaboration platforms where they might have little icons saying they're in a meeting that can actually just mean they've reserved a small task in their calendar to say don't forget to water the plant but suddenly we think oh we can't disturb that person so i'm just either going to ignore this issue or i'm just going to carry on as i always did um and i'm going to engage in it thinking that it's real like, anecdotally as well like I've, I've we've talked a lot about fishing but this will be the last one hopefully uh, so you know i've i've been in rooms where in offices where someone will literally stand up and say hey nobody clicked this like this is suspicious and, and <laughs> you know when you're breaking down those boundaries where everyone is, is segregated like we we it's much more difficult to do that right like it's, it's hard to just say hey everyone this looks dodgy like i've just got this email or i've just had this phone call uh you know that that passing of information is you know with within yeah various platforms like teams or whatever else like they're amazing like you know we would be in in a, in a lot of hot water without them especially during during covid and, and everything else but it, it's not a replacement for like you said sitting next to someone and being like hey does this look, does this look weird to you or this looks weird to me make sure you don't click it you know like th those kind of communications have definitely been broken down to a certain extent which i think is is a concern yeah it's it's i'll mention i'll do a twist on your last mention of fishing but spear fishing uh you are isolated you don't know what's going on your your horizon has come a lot closer to you. So uh, if you get the, you know, the traditional sort of, here's an email from uh, my uh, I don't know, CEO saying, uh, um, I'm on holiday, I need this payment to be made urgently. You're 
okay, do I email the CEO and check with him? Who do I talk to? Whereas if you're in the office, you might say, that's weird. I saw him this morning. He walked past and said hello. So you, it is difficult because you, your re- the amount of information that you have to process has reduced dramatically. Um, but uh, yeah, so then we start talking about zero trust, as, as we said earlier. Let's uh, isolate people to, technically. Um, to cope with the fact they're isolated from their co-workers. But uh, it, it's definitely, uh, it has made changes. It's definitely made changes. And uh, I think, Jay, you're being very nice there if you just put a YouTube video on. I, I, remember, in, <laughs> I remember in London doing a, an all-staff email from somebody's unlocked PC saying they were, uh, they were off to buy ice creams for everybody at lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems pretty standard. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm just trying to avoid getting HR involved. <laughs> um, but you, you made a really interesting point there, Rob, which is about the information, the contextual information is lacking in this remote work, working space. And that appears to be compounded by the fact that we are on the other side of the coin overloaded with messages with things coming through in um, communications channels that are um, all demanding the same sort of attention of us so previously we'd be being in the in the office and as you said kieran so would stand up and go no don't click on that we are seeing everything coming through on email or everything coming through on Slack. And it's how do I sort through this massive pile and find the stuff that's really important? Because it feels almost to say if you come to work at nine o'clock in the morning and your only job is to just burrow, 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 get the pile to go down. So then you can have the lovely Sisyphean task the next day of doing it all over again. And if that's what we're aiming towards, which is reducing our list of tasks to nil so we can refill, then finding the stuff that's interesting and um, important to act on becomes a lot harder. I personally, I'm a big fan of remote working. Uh, As a company, we have a policy of you can work from home unless you need to go somewhere uh, or for a client or that uh, there's a team meeting or something. But uh, the rest of the time you can work from home, which is great. But you do need to manage that communication. During the last, uh, how long we've been on here, I must, it felt like 100 Teams notifications and email <laughs> notifications. And so I now need to go through what's important there. What do I need to deal with first? So it, it's around uh, channeling the communication into in a way that you can handle it. So it's learning new behaviours, I think, really. It's, it's the way that's going to have to happen. But yeah, maybe we can put, do those while we're teaching the SLT to uh, be cyber aware at the same time. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> any further points um, if you'd like to... Like to cover off um i i just like to throw one thing in in into in, into the mix which is to come back to the point around how do we actually get over cultural issues of people being able to um, raise concerns with others and certainly as we look back at the aviation industry where you may have a more junior um, co-pilot on the flight deck and they see something that's awry and how do they let the person that is senior know without potentially ruffling that person's feathers uh, we can actually take that into account up front by um, something called the pace model which i find really helpful which stands for um probe alert challenge and then escalation or emergency so i always think so you know if we have someone that's uh, done so, done something that seems a bit odd we can just say have you seen this over here and it's almost as if you're in time to invite that person in so it's bringing their attention to it and if we still don't get through then we can move on to alert so even if we're dealing with someone very 
senior, we can say, hmm, have you this doesn't seem quite right over over here. And then again, we can challenge even further to say, are you absolutely sure that you want to do to do that? So we're looking for a positive, affirmative response from the person every time. And then if we agree certain keywords and phrases in advance, we should feel comfortable in moving to the end of the model where we escalate or do the emergency, where we use something designed to make people actually take a step back. And that could be as simple as just saying stop. But it's only by building these in ahead of time that we can take into account all these human problems of interaction, social and work-based interaction, and we can give people the tools to try to stop a bad security weakness from actually getting any worse. Yeah, the, the tools are important as well. There needs to be the the communication and the response, not just here's a way I can tell you something, I found something suspicious or something I'm not sure, but that I will get a response because if I don't get something back saying at least thanks for telling me, uh, I'm going to say, oh, you're not bothered. I'm not going to do it next time. And then you're going to miss out because people just just ignore it from that point on. I think like one of the key things is making sure that it is the entire organization, right? Like the, again, like with the junior pilot and the senior pilot, that, that process works because both of those parties understand that process and understand that that's, that's how this will work. Um, yeah, like making sure that, you know, the, the junior members of the team know that, you know, if you do raise something to the CEO or whoever else, that that is expected. Like this isn't, you're, you're not going to be chastised. That isn't the way we operate uh, within this organization. I think that's that's the key thing is making sure that, and again, something that Rob mentioned earlier, this isn't an IT problem. This is an organizational problem. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so uh, we shall uh, leave it there. Um, so this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I'll take this opportunity to uh, thank Jay, Rob and Kieran for providing their insights to the topic and thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in a future podcast, then please reach out to me on LinkedIn or on emails at evolution, robert.wall at evolutionjobs.co.uk. We'll see you next time.